Micah 7, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word, so let's give it all our attention now. For I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen and the day of your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And our New Testament text is Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. You'll see here that Jesus quotes from Micah 7. Some of those words we just read, uh, words of judgment on unbelieving Israel, both in Micah's day as well as in our Lord's day. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. Let's hear God's word. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Let's pray now. Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts tender to your word. Lord, let our hearts not be hardened, but let our hearts be soft, the good soil, that you might plant your word there, that it might bear much fruit. Lord, we pray that you do this by the work of your all-powerful Holy Spirit, for we are powerless to do this for ourselves. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' words are shocking here, aren't they? Who else talks like this? He says that uh, 
that uh, he didn't come to bring peace, he came to bring a sword, that he's come to set uh, a, a mother against a daughter, a daughter against a mother, and that it's all about himself. He says shocking things. But he's not doing it for shock value. He's not doing it to get clicks and likes and shares uh, and, and, and generate lots of buzz around what he's saying. He's simply speaking the truth about who he is and what his presence means. He's centering all of history on himself. He's centering our whole lives on himself, drawing all our attention to himself. If anyone else talked like this, we'd say he's a megalomaniac, right? Just self-obsessed, narcissistic, and thinks you should be all about me. But this is Jesus. He's not like anyone else. It really is all about him. He's the Savior. Uh, He's the one who comes to bring eternal life. Jesus is telling us, brothers and sisters, in these verses, that because of who he is, we must be entirely devoted to him. That we must be absolutely and unreservedly devoted to him. He demands everything. At the same time, he promises us a rich reward. We see both of these things in this passage. He promises that, that, he'll, that, that if, we, if we follow him, if we give up everything and follow him and, and, and give ourselves over to him, he will richly reward us in a way that's wildly out of proportion with any cost uh, of, of ours. He'll give us a place in his kingdom. So he calls us here in this text to take up our cross, and then he also promises us a crown. This is the main point of the passage. Jesus says, remember, he's wrapping up his instructions to his disciples about their mission. Throughout chapter 10, he's, he's been instructing them on their mission to the Gentile, uh, excuse me, to the, to the lost sheep of Israel. He's told them the fields are ripe for harvest. Pray the Lord would send out laborers. And now they've prayed, and now the Lord is sending out his laborers into the harvest. And he's promised them what they're going to, what they should expect persecution, hardship, and suffering, even from their closest, dearest friends. But now he's saying, take up your cross, follow him, answer his call. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Three headings this morning as we work through these verses together. The first is this, Jesus divides. Jesus divides. Listen to Jesus' words in verses 34 to 36. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. How do we make sense of what Jesus is saying? He says, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. So much of Scripture talks about how he did come to bring peace on earth, doesn't it? Think of the angel's song in uh, in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Isaiah 9-6, prophecy of the Messiah, says the Messiah is going to be called the Prince of Peace. Uh, Colossians 1-20, Jesus came to make peace by the blood of his cross. It's all over Scripture. We could multiply those texts a hundred times over, couldn't we? Jesus came to bring peace, but he says here, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. What does he mean? Think about the nature of the kingdom that he's bringing for a minute. All right, what, what is the nature of the kingdom Jesus is bringing? It's the end-time kingdom. 
right? It's, 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 the, it's the consummation, right? He, he's bringing what's been promised for so long, God coming to reign over his people as their king. Um, he's establishing that. He's starting that. Um, what, what does this kingdom involve? It involves two things. It involves salvation and judgment, both of, those, both of those things together, salvation and judgment. And, and if you look back over the course of your Bibles and think through the stories uh, in, in the Bible of, of how God works, he always works this way, doesn't he, to save his people? He, he brings salvation, but he does it through judgment. So we think of uh, Noah and the flood. He comes to save Noah. How does he save him from the wicked world around him? He saves him through judgment on that world. Salvation through judgment. We see it again with, uh, with Exodus, right? Um, he saves Israel from Egypt. How does he do it? Judgment on the Egyptians. Judgment on Pharaoh. Judgment on their, their false gods. He brings the Israelites into the promised land. He brings them salvation of this glorious inheritance in this wonderful land through judgment of the wicked who are there. And we could... We could Keep going. David and Goliath. Salvation through judgment. Over and over in Scripture, we see this, this pattern. And it's all, you know, these are all teaser trailers for Jesus and his kingdom when he comes. It's going to be salvation. Glorious salvation. End time salvation. Ultimate salvation. Through judgment. The Messiah was expected to bring both of these things. We see this in a text we already referenced, Isaiah 9. Uh, which says this about the end time salvation the Messiah would bring. It says, You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's a great picture. Happy picture of what the Messiah will bring. But then the text goes on. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the expectation of the Messiah is going to bring a wonderful salvation through judgment on Israel's enemies. And another example, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Salvation. And then, and the day of vengeance of our God. Judgment. Messiah will bring both. There's these two harmonic lines in the, in the music of the Messiah's coming. Both, both those notes, salvation and judgment. Now, often in Jesus' ministry, the salvation part is the louder part. In fact, when he himself is preaching in a synagogue on Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, uh, he doesn't go on and read the part about the, ven- the day of the Lord's vengeance. He's announcing the day of the Lord's favor. And most of his ministry, that's the dominant note. Um, uh, but, 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 uh, and, and then when, when he comes the second time, that's when the, the judgment part will come out more prominently. But there are also times in his ministry where you do see notes of, of judgment against on believing Israel, especially. Uh, judgment on them for their rebellion, for their hardening of their hearts, for their sinful refusal to accept their Messiah, whom God has sent. And, uh, and that is what we see going on right here in this passage. Jesus is, is announcing some kind of judgment on those who don't hear him. And this judgment comes in the form of division. Um, it comes in the form of division between those who receive Christ 
love Him and follow Him and those who refuse Him and hate Him and don't follow Him. This division, Jesus says, is going to come. I'm, I'm, it's going to cut across. It's going to cut through the deepest ties, the closest relationships will be severed because people will be divided over this Christ. Those who receive Him versus those who don't receive Him. This division is going to cut through these things. Children are going to turn against parents, He warns. Uh, Parents are going to turn against children. Best friends against best friends because of Jesus. It's the judgment He's bringing on unbelieving Israel. It didn't stop, though. Um, That that continues, doesn't it? That... um, the gospel goes out to the world, and this continues to happen. Jesus is divisive. Right? Some people love him. See, this is the Savior I need. This is the Savior I love. This is, all my hope is in this Savior. Some people hate him, can't stand him, want nothing to do with him. And that dividing line sometimes does cut through families, doesn't it? Cuts through marriages. Cuts through the relationship between parents and children, between a brother and a brother, a sister and a sister. Children believe. Parents reject them. Uh, We see this in our own lives. We see this some places around the world. You'll see where children are disowned, cut off completely, and treated as though they're dead because they choose to follow Christ. This is a real warning to us. What's the temptation when that happens? When your commitment to Jesus costs you a precious relationship with someone else. The temptation is to say, well, it's just not worth it. Right? I, I love this other person too. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, uh, follow Jesus because I'm going to stick with them. And if I follow Jesus, they'll, they'll leave me. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my friend instead of with Jesus. Another temptation is perhaps to compromise. Well, I'll follow Jesus, uh, uh, but, but, uh, but I'm going to keep it private so that this uh, person whom I love won't, um, won't, won't turn away from me and reject me. Um, that's the temptation. But Jesus says, there's no room for that in my disciples. No divided hearts in those who follow me. So Jesus divides. That's the warning. It's, it's, it's a note of judgment being sounded here. But the second thing we see is Jesus demands Jesus demands. There are two things that Jesus demands we see in verses 37 through 39. First, he demands that he have the first place in our loves. Verse 37 says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, Don't have anyone else in your life that you love more than you love me. Don't have anyone else that matters to you more than I matter to you. Um, uh, he, he's got to have the first place. He's got he's to be the one we love most of all. Again, we hear him say that, and perhaps we think, well, that's narcissistic. Uh, how, how can you be so obsessed with yourself, Jesus, to think that you're the only one who can have the, the first place in my heart? But it is, it is right for him to say this. It would be wrong for him not to say this because of who he is. He's saying the same thing that God said to Abraham when he asked him to sacrifice Isaac. God says, I'm your covenant Lord. I need to be first. Saying the same thing that, uh, that uh, 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 this is the same reason Hannah gave up her little boy Samuel to the Lord. 
The Lord comes first over all others that we love. He is the one who's worthy of this. Because He's our Creator who made us. Uh, because he's, he's the one who upholds us by His power. Um, he is the one who, who, who has sustained us every day of our lives. We owe Him this as our Creator. We also owe Him this as the one who's redeemed us. And Jesus is our covenant Lord who has rescued us, who has purchased us with His own blood. So you shall have no other gods before Him. Right? That's the first commandment. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery to sin and death. You shall have no other gods before me, not your husband, not your wife, not your children, not your parents, not your friends. So brothers and sisters, do you love Jesus Christ more than anyone else? Does He matter more to you than anyone else? Do you treasure Him above every other relationship? Jesus says, if you don't, you're not worthy of Me. Um, He doesn't mean that we're qualified for a place in His kingdom because of how much we love Him, that once we reach a certain level of love for Jesus, then He'll let us in. But He is saying that if, if, if you have received salvation from Me, if, if My grace has, has come and, and, uh, and, has, and has brought you to Myself and you've trusted in Me, this is the result of that. This is the fruit of that. You will love Me more than all else. You will, uh, you will, uh, you will follow Me like this. So it needs to be our heart's desire to grow in love for Jesus. It needs to be our, 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 our deepest desire to grow in love for Jesus. That, 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 that our hearts would love Him first and love Him most more than any other. Well, what should we do then in light of that? He says, if you don't love Me uh, more than all others, you're not worthy of Me. Well, first, I think we should all admit that, that we have sinned against this command of our Lord. Um, that we don't love Him as we should. That, that we don't love Him with complete devotion like He asks us to. So the first thing we should do is confess it to Him. Go to Him and say, Lord, you, 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 are, you are the one who deserves this love. You're worthy of this love. Forgive me for not loving you as I, as I should. And then, and then pray to Him to give you that heart of love for Him. Pray that the Lord would, uh, would, 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 uh, would make Himself first in your heart. Use the words of the hymn we're going to sing a little later on. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at Thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for Thee. It's a prayer the Lord would delight to answer. So make it your resolve to pray that the Lord would give you a heart of love for Him, greater love for Him. So the first thing he demands is our love. The second thing he demands is that we die to ourselves and follow Him. So verses 38 to 39, he says, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of, of, of me. What does he mean by a cross? We're familiar with crosses. There's one right here, right? There, we see them all around. Um, we, we have them on a necklace. We have them, uh, we, they're, they're a religious symbol that is so common to us. But when Jesus said these words to his disciples, of course, none of that was there. No one thought of the cross as a symbol for Christ or as a religious symbol. Uh, the cross was known as a instrument of torture and execution and shame 
Um, so if we, it's hard to, to hear the shock of Jesus' words when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Translating it into our culture, we might say, have a seat in the electric chair and follow me. Take the lethal injection and follow me. Crucifixion, of course, is worse than those. Much more painful, shameful, humiliating, brutal, agonizing punishment for murderers and rebels. The kind of thing that uh, only the worst of the worst would receive. And you would literally actually have to carry your cross to the place of your crucifixion, even as Jesus did. Carried the cross beam on his back up to Golgotha. And that was what, what criminals would have to do as they were shamed and mocked and uh, uh, humiliated as they bore their cross through the streets to the place of their crucifixion. So what does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross, have a seat in the electric chair, and follow me? Scary words. One commentator puts it so well, he says, to follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a life of self-determination. To follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a life of self-determination. You sign your life away to him. Take it all, Lord. Take, take, take. take uh, you say, I'm, I'm, not in, I'm, I'm not in command of my life. You're in charge of my marriage. You're in charge of my finances. You're in charge of my relationships. You're in charge of my parenting. You're in charge of my work. You're in charge of my free time. You're in charge of my thoughts, my emotions, my words, my actions. All of it, Lord. It's all yours. It's painful to say that. But that's why Jesus uses this image of the cross of suffering and death. Because following Him and living a life of self-denial is, is painful and agonizing. It's, we're, we're putting our old sinful self to death. Our old sinful desires. We're crucifying them. It's a long and painful ordeal. And the world looks at that and says, it looks like you're losing your life. It looks like you're throwing your life away. But Jesus says, no, This is how you find life. This is the only way to really live. This is the way you find life, by denying yourself, by putting to death your sinful deeds and desires and following Jesus and signing your life away completely to Him, being completely surrendered to Him and submissive to Him. I want to say a word of warning here about this, though. Um, There's a way to live where you feel like you are taking up your cross and denying yourself and following Jesus. There's a, there's a way to, to live where you think you're doing that, but you're actually, you're actually not. Um, and if you're living that way, it's going to lead to burnout pretty fast. Um, it's going to be a joyless slog of a life. And that's not what Jesus is calling us to. All right, if, if we're living, uh, trying to live, uh, taking up our cross and following Jesus... But we don't remember that first part of his command about loving him most. If love isn't motivating this, then it's just going to be a, a joyless um, uh, burnout for us. Um, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 13.3. He says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Um, Jesus demands both. You need, you need both. Your heart 
and your hands, right? The love and the service, the, the commitment, the devotion to him together with the sacrifice for him. He, he demands both. And it's only when you have both that taking up your cross, yes, it'll be painful, but also you'll find this is where real life is in Jesus. So that's what Jesus demands. Third thing we see in the text, Jesus rewards. Jesus rewards. Jesus closes out this section of teaching, chapter 10, with, uh, by pointing us to the reward that he's promising. He's demanded much, right? He's demanded absolute devotion. He's demanded self-denial that runs down to the very roots of our hearts and our desires. Um, but he's also here promising us a rich reward. Uh, let's look at this then together. First thing he says there is that if you receive Jesus' messengers, you are receiving Jesus. Right, he's sending out the disciples to share the gospel, to go on mission for his kingdom. Um, and uh, he's telling them that those who receive you are receiving, are receiving me. Um, the king, right, if you have a king sending out ambassadors, the way you receive those ambassadors shows how you think about the king and what you, how, you, how you feel towards him. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I'm sending you out. Those who receive you, the way they receive you is the way they are receiving me. What's the, what's the point for us here? It's that those who are sharing the gospel with us, those who preach the gospel to us faithfully, are not representing themselves or their own agenda. They're representing Christ and his, uh, his mission and his kingdom. And so we should receive those who tell the gospel to us as we would receive Christ himself and receive their words and their ministry as we would receive Christ himself. And we, when you welcome the preaching of the word of Christ into your heart, you're welcoming Christ into your heart. And when you welcome me, Jesus says, you're welcoming God. God sent Jesus. Jesus sends his disciples. You receive the disciples. You receive Jesus. You receive Jesus. You receive the Father. So, brothers and sisters, we should receive those who bring us the gospel as receiving Christ himself. He promises a reward, right? If, it, 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 this can be costly. To receive the gospel, to receive and welcome those who preach the gospel can be costly, especially in, in various parts of the world where persecution is more severe. Um, but, but Jesus is saying it, it can't be too costly because the reward is you get Christ. You receive and welcome the gospel and those who preach the gospel, you are, you are receiving Christ himself and the kingdom that is, that is, that is ours in him. And that's worth everything. But, um, so he gets this, we see this reward, but what kind of obedience do you have to offer to get this reward? Um, Jesus is interesting here. He's not saying that we have to be um, super disciples, missionaries ourselves, uh, apostles. He's, he's talking here about those who offer him true obedience from the heart, all of them. He, he, he talks about small acts of obedience here. You notice he turns from talking about um, uh, those who receive you, receive those who sent me. Um, then he says, if you receive a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. If you welcome a righteous man, you receive a righteous man's reward. You don't have to be a prophet to get a reward in his kingdom. Just welcome the prophet. You don't have to be a great, standout, righteous man in his kingdom. But if you receive a righteous man, you'll receive a reward, and then he, he he drives this this point home with the last thing he says, and he says that if you do something as simple as give one cup of cold water 
one time to the least person in his kingdom, you receive a great reward. One little cup of cold water offered in his name to a disciple, and you receive the whole kingdom of heaven. Jesus, as we said, he's demanding complete obedience, complete uh, devotion to himself. But, but what does that look like? Well, it looks like, like, like giving a cup of cold water to the least of his disciples. Humble acts of quiet service to the smallest people in his kingdom. One writer says Jesus is speaking of the smallest conceivable gift to the most insignificant of people. He's saying, this is what discipleship is. This is what taking up your cross following me is. And this is what I'm looking for and what I'll reward. Taking out the trash. Serving in the nursery. Giving a cup of cold water. Being patient with the least of these. Bringing flowers or a note or ice cream to someone who needs some encouragement. Um, right? Jesus is calling us to these sorts of things and he is, he, he, he's promising us that he sees them and he notices all of them. That there is no act of faithful love to him that's too small for him to notice and take note of and reward. What an, what an encouragement to us, right? In the, in the, just the, the, daily, um, the daily taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, serving others, when the thanks might not seem to be there, Jesus sees and he knows and he notices and he promises a rich reward. He, he treats everything you do to the least and most insignificant person in his kingdom as something you're doing to him. This is the point he makes in, later on in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 25. How you treat the least of these, my brothers, you, you did it to me. No one else might see, but he sees. And he says, I'm going to respond as though you, you did that to me. Um, he promises this great reward. Jesus promises this reward to us. We see it all through the New, Te- the New Testament, through the Gospels, Jesus promising rewards. And he wants us to be motivated by a desire to receive them. But um, at the same time as we're thinking about this, this idea of reward in, in the Gospels, we, we want to make a couple of things clear. Let me just make two brief points then about rewards and the way they function in the Gospel. Because it can get tricky. It can, get, it can be a sticky wicket. Uh, to uh, start thinking about getting rewarded for obedience, can't it? Um, what does Jesus mean? Well, he, it's clear here from his words that the reward is not at all proportional. It's not a proportional reward. Um, we're not slaving away, dying to ourselves, taking up our cross for some kind of minimum wage in the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus has promised us an everlasting inheritance. And he says, you get the reward when you give one cup of cold water one time as an act of love for me to a disciple of mine. Right? It's wildly out of proportion. What he's asking you to do and, and what he gives you. It's a gracious reward. That's, that's the point. He's not giving it to you because you earned it, but because of his lavish grace and his goodness to you. The reward is wildly out of proportion to the obedience. We need to remember that. If we start, if we start thinking that uh, the work we're doing is probably worth a little bit more than Jesus has promised to give us, right? That, that if that if uh, uh, that that if that there's a pretty reasonable proportion between my faithfulness and what the Lord has promised to give, it's a very dangerous place to be. 
um, you've lost the gospel at that point. Because if you have a higher estimate of your sacrifice for Christ than his gracious gift to you, uh, then, then, then you're on dangerous ground. Think of the Apostle Paul, right? Um, what did he go through? He was whipped, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead, uh, he was um, cut off from his, uh, from his people, rejected by, rejected by his fellow Jews, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, and uh, finally beheaded. And he says, this light momentary affliction, and that's what he calls it, all that suffering, a light momentary affliction in comparison with the weight of glory that's coming. That's the right perspective to have on our obedience and our sacrifices that we make for the Lord. Lord, it's nothing in comparison to what, 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 what you're, you're giving me, what you have given me, what you promised me. The second thing to say about this reward, not only is it wildly out of proportion, uh, a sign of the grace of God, but it's not a reward we're really earning ourselves at all. Um, even if you and I lived perfect lives where we did not break a single one of God's commandments. He would owe us nothing at all. If, if, if we kept every commandment, he wouldn't owe us anything. Right? He is our creator. The, the bare minimum he requires is a life of perfect obedience, completely sinless. So anything, anything that he gives us is, is a gracious gift. He upholds us as our creator. We owe him everything by virtue of that. Anything that he gives us for obedience is a reward for that, is a gracious thing. And then we add to the fact that, that, that uh, none of our good works are of ourselves. They're only of the Spirit working in us. It's him working. God is producing in us the fruits that he wants to see. We're not producing them. So any, any, anything that is produced in us that's worthy of a reward by His grace is actually His own work in us. So He gets the glory and the credit for that. And of course, all our good works in ourselves are not good works at all. Um, we don't deserve any reward. We just deserve God's wrath, condemnation, and judgment. But instead, the reward we get is actually what Jesus earned what Jesus earned. God holds out to us the same reward that Jesus won. He says, you come, put your faith in my Son by my grace, follow Him by my grace, trust in Him completely for your salvation, trust in His righteousness, you have none, and I'll reward you with the same reward I give my Son, an eternal inheritance in my kingdom with me. So, brothers and sisters, it's worth it. Take up the cross. Follow Jesus. Make Him first in your loves. Pray that He would be. Give everything to follow Him. Sign your whole life away to Him. He will richly, richly reward you with His own reward that He has won. It's worth it. Christ Himself promises us that. He would know. He took up His cross. He endured the suffering. He endured the shame. And now He knows what the reward is. He tastes that. And... and uh, he says it's worth it. So let's, let's follow him. Let's follow where he, where he has led us um, in, in faithful discipleship to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace of your gospel. We thank you that you lavish your grace on us, that you've opened heaven for us through the merits of our Savior, our Lord.